Welcome to all of you hearing my voice on this Saturday, August the 16th of the year 2014. My name is David Thompson. For those that are new, I just want to briefly tell you that I am here to preach the Word of God in the spirit of prophecy. I do not have much prepared. I only spend a half an hour in a chapter each day and ask God to give me some inf what he's wanting to say and then trust him to speak by his spirit through me. This is often done by the casting of lots. And I won't go into saying anything more than that. I am continuing with the passage I received the other day which was 1 John chapter 2, because I had already preached over an hour and I'd only got about a third of the way through John, 1 John chapter 2. I do not know what the Lord is wanting to say or what I'm going to say. I do know that I am somewhat weary and tired as I'm speaking at around 10 in the evening and have had a very full day. But I'm trusting God to minister and speak to myself, to the body of Christ, and to those that God has foreknown would hear this message. My prayer is that you would be brought forth by the Spirit of God to understand what he is saying to you personally. Okay. I will just begin with where I left off, and that's in verse 12 of 1 John chapter 2. The, Paul the Apostle addresses the reason, pardon me, not Paul the Apostle, John the Apostle addresses the reason why he is writing this letter to the church. He emphasizes further down also that reason. And at the beginning, he says, it's so that we as his people would not sin. And I've already mentioned that in the previous message. Of course, involved in sin, there is the failure to have victory in our lives, to overcome evil and wickedness. He emphasizes also in this chapter that he does not want God's people to be seduced or deceived. That's in verse 26. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. So he starts out in verse 12 and he says, I write unto you little children because your sins are are forgiven you for his name's sake. It says for his name's sake. God's name's sake. Another term for God is Elohim, which literally means the Almighty's one. It's the plural Almighty's but one. I needn't explain in detail that there is only one God. But this one God is understood and perceived in three dimensions of government. In government beyond the time and space realm and as the originator of all things, he is known as the Father. In fact, the word Father basically has that understanding behind it. It has the understanding of origin, of origination and the understanding of seeing the end from beginning because of the maturity there is through being able to span time. Of course, when we look up to a natural father, we say, well, this one is our father because he's been through all of these things and he knows things 
that we could never know from the experiences he's been through. There is also the Son. Now, the word Son means expression. And it says in Hebrews 1.4 that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father. In fact, the Father is expressed in government or God is expressed in government into the time and space realm as the Son. You cannot have God only governing, governing to see the end from the beginning of all things and being the originator of creation, but also being the one that partakes in his creation and communicates with his creation by entering the time and space realm. And so God is expressed and the full expression of God into creation is the government of God in the time and space realm and his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And so you need a person to be beyond time and space and a person to be in time and space in order to govern in those two dimensions of existence. And then you have the filling of all things. Omnipresence. The Spirit of God filling all things, attached with his presence to every particle of existence that is created in every dimension of existence. And I'm not going to get into detail about that, but if you know anything about the recent discoveries in particle physics, you would know that there is a very clear understanding that there are other realms of existence that are even more real than this physical realm. And that's what they've discovered from particle physics. And that's a very interesting topic, a $16 billion or $10 billion project with 60,000 scientists that took up to 16 years to build, firing particles at almost the speed of light and, of course, colliding at almost twice the speed of light with powerful explosions of about a billion explosions a minute with heat 100,000 times hotter than the center of the sun. Out of those billion explosions, one million are analyzed every second or, or set apart for analysis every second when, these, when they have these collisions happening. And then it's, of course, from that mathematical analysis, they discovered the God particle in July of 2012 that is behind all the order of things that are observed in the atom in all the various dimensions which they now know are other realms that are very real. But they now have discovered that there's this force that is causing all of this to be held together that's behind that. And of course we know that is the Spirit of God in omnipresence. And so you have God governing in personage in three dimensions of existence beyond time and space into time and space and filling all things, all three dimensions of existence. And in this passage of Scripture, there is an emphasis, first of all, that their sins are forgiven for his name's sake, speaking of God, the Almighty's one. And I have described in the previous message that the essence of who God is, is love. For it says in this very book, 1 John, twice that God is love. And I have described in the previous message in detail, at least more detail, the essence of this ultimate perfection of love, which can only contain unlimited power and unlimited life without being corrupted by it, because this love, which always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice that would be less, is always being guarded by its integrity as a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to such choices which are out of the perfection of love who God is. So God is a consuming fire of judgment against 
all that is contrary to his being of love or that is contrary to his choices and expressions of creativity that are always onto the highest lasting good to the sacrifice of anything that would be less for some more immediate fulfillment. So when we talk about name here, we're talking about the essence of who God is. For name is merely the expression of the essence of who God is. And God is love. And it's for the sake of who God is that their sins are forgiven. How is that so? It is so in this sense that as I explained before, in the previous message, if it was that God only had an integrity of love that judged all that was contrary to love, and that's all there was to the being of God's love, then there would not be destiny for creation or meaning or purpose. But God's being of love. Yes, it has this integrity, which is the holiness of God, which is the defensive aspect of God's love. It is the foundation for this love to bring forth creativity that is allowed to be ongoing in creativity and an enlargement because there is no principle of corruption on the foundation of such integrity of love. It is the foundation that allows creativity to go on and not be corrupted. If God could end the creation of beings and all the universe create what was out of him, then, and that become corrupted, then in the infinite past, it would also be true that there would be the annihilation of creation. Now, that's a bit hard to understand right now and swallow because we understand that there is corruption in creation because creation has been given free will. They are the source of their own action without being the source of one's own action and self-originating. There isn't the capacity to love. What I am talking about is the aspect of creativity that cannot be corrupted because that creativity is in God. I am not talking about what originates from free will beings, but about creativity that originates from God himself. And that creativity is ultimately manifested in the fact that God can assure to free will beings, even if they fall into corruption as man has, the assurance of mercy and forgiveness I know that doesn't apply to angels and certain things, and I can't go into that for time now to explain. What I am wanting to share at this point in time is an understanding of his mercy, the other the ultimate manifestation out of the foundation of God's holiness or the integrity of his love and creativity is the mercy of God that would have such a great moral capacity in the perfection of love to himself take upon him the judgment of free will beings that have made choices contrary to his love. Take that judgment upon himself and absorb it because it is only God that can be a perfect atoning sacrifice. And it takes a perfect atoning sacrifice to absorb eternally the judgment of creation that is willfully sinned against God and repents 
course, it's because of this reason that God has such within his name or his being the power to have such a moral capacity to so love us that he indeed did suffer more than us mere creatures and humbled himself more than us mere creatures because he loved us so much as was manifested in his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And he conquered death. He absorbed and tasted death for all man, it says. And he absorbed that and conquered it through pouring out his life in his blood for creation as a perfect atoning sacrifice that he might reconcile all things unto himself whether they be things in heaven or things in earth. that repent and are able to receive the atoning sacrifice of God himself for them. And the understanding of his namesake is the understanding that our sins are forgiven because within his name there is this capacity to provide Mercy to provide forgiveness. It's only in God that there lies forgiveness, and it is because there is within Him the moral capacity to be of such a quality as to actually have done what He has done. And before He came and died in the cross, there was still in those that had the revelation, those that came to the understanding, the recognition of the greatness of His mercy because they recognized that forgiveness was in God and yet that God required judgment upon sin and they recognized also very clearly in various scriptures in the Old Testament that animal sacrifices would not suffice for the atoning and the ransoming of their soul, the redeeming of their soul. And I can't go into pointing out all of those verses, but they are there. God will probably lead me to a passage soon to point that out very clearly. But what I'm pointing out here is that his name is upheld because that in the integrity of his love, there can be from that foundation this mercy that is ultimately expressed in the fullness of its creativity to bring forth a corporate bride by God himself absorbing judgment for those free will beings that he seeks to bring in back into harmony with his will. If God could not provide for creation, destiny and purpose, and the by the assurance of forgiveness through who he is in his mercy, it would imply, in a certain sense, that God was imperfect. But we know that that's not true, for God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And so if God was not able to provide mercy and to assure mercy, it would not be really the evidence of a God that is perfect. It would imply corruption. And so his name would, the ultimate perfection of love would not be upheld. It's because God is who he is in the ultimate perfection of this love in these two aspects. First, the holiness of God or the integrity of his love out of which springs the manifestation of a creativity without corruption that is evident that it has no corruption and that it can even assure mercy to creation, which is the expression of who God is. God creates out of his love. Love in its very essence is creative. But for it to be a creativity without corruption that comes out of God, that creativity must be a creativity that has such an ultimate moral perfection in it that it can assure 
purpose and destiny to creation so that what God expresses ultimately does not have corruption in it. Yes, beings that make their own choices because they are the source of their own action have corruption in them and they will be eternally separated from the love of God in a place of torment and hell forever. But that did not come out of God because having the capacity to love makes them the source of their own action. They are self-originating. Therefore, they are the creators of their own destiny. What I am talking about is what comes out of God in the aspect of this other aspect which makes the positive out of the first symbol, which is the negative, representing foundation, and the next, the positive, representing the symbol of the cross. The ultimate positive in this universe is the manifestation of God's love out of his mercy that is upon the foundation and can only come out of the foundation of the integrity of God's love and holiness. And so when John the Apostle is talking about your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, it is in the sense that I just told you. His name's sake is the upholding of the glory of who God is, that he is God that is without darkness at all. And that is in the evidence that not only is he a God of judgment against sin, but that out of this holiness of God, there can be a perfect atoning sacrifice that can assure destiny and purpose for God's ultimate purpose of creativity in a corporate bride. And this creativity of love, because of this ultimate expression on the cross, can go on forever and ever in greater and greater enlargement and fulfillment without end. All because of who God is. And so it was even before the world created that God had planned all these things that he would bring forth a corporate bride. And so it's for the glory of his name, the upholding of his name. In that sense, our sins are also forgiven because it is that God's purpose is that we would praise him throughout eternity when we see the greatness of his mercy to us that he could have forgiven a wretch like you and a wretch like me. Now, I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. Now, this phrase is repeated twice by John the Apostle. He is emphasizing the reason why he is writing unto them. He's wanting to assure them, as I just mentioned, that their sins are forgiven because of who God is and the upholding of his name and the glory of his name. But he's also wanting those that are more mature, that are fathers in the faith. He's emphasizing you've known him from way back. And he says it twice to them. You have known him that is from the beginning. It is in knowing God from the beginning that causes us to be those that can truly be fathers. Because what is in the beginning? In the beginning, God created. We look at what God created. It's a reflection of who God was before the creation. And what we see in God as the Father 
is more the aspect of the integrity of his being in such ultimate purity that it will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to this law. This is a this causes absolute awe. In fact, the fear of God, when it commands us to fear God, it is commanding us to make a choice to recognize God for who he truly is. To recognize that he has such a quality of being that he is ultimately trustworthy. What causes caused Eve to sin is that she bought into doubt that then resulted in a perception of God as less than ultimately trustworthy. So at that moment, she lost sight in who her true life source was. Remember, the Father is the source. He is the originator. She lost sight in who her true life source was. She lost sight that God was ultimately trustworthy because of this integrity of love that would judge the slightest that was contrary to it the holiness of God. And that causes, when you have a perception that's not merely intellectual, but from the heart, it causes a deep awe. It causes a great dependence upon God because you recognize that your life would be nothing apart from God, that you wouldn't have meaning or purpose or destiny, that you've been given the privilege to experience such meaning and fulfillment and destiny because God guards against all that is contrary to life, to meaning, to destiny, which results in him being able to provide meaning and destiny without corruption without ending in pain and suffering. This causes an awareness so that before Christ died on the cross, the angels were always in awe and thankfulness of who God was because they saw him so much. They saw him in his very glory and majesty. And they were in awe of what they were before and the power of it. And they saw the power of this glory and majesty that allowed nothing that was contrary to what is fully constructive onto meaning and purpose to, and life to be even possible to be around. For God is a consuming fire. Yes, in the all the, in the universe, in the known universe, we see the first and second laws of thermodynamics observed in all the known universe. The first law basically meaning that anything left on its own goes in the direction of disorder. And so they saw that only as they were abiding in God would they be in the direction of order and that apart from God they would be in the direction of suffering and torment and death for they saw within the glory of God this and were filled with appreciation and awe that caused them to know a humbling before God that would always keep them in the place of utter reality or honesty and also in the place of utter humility, to be in that place of utter dependence and trust that did not allow in it a state of pride that would cause there to be the buying in of doubt so that one would fall from such an abiding relationship, which would result in a vacuum in their inner being that would be like a black hole in outer space that would draw everything in in destruction. And that's exactly what happened to Lucifer. He went against the direct presence of the glory of God and ended up, and that was because he made a choice to not fear God and to think that he could be equal with God. And so you try to fill the void, and the more you try to fill it, the more the destructiveness increases and the ugliness increases because there's a choice to not abide in God. It is in knowing God is our life source, God as our Father, Father meaning source, and one who sees the end from the beginning and knows all. 
But there is a maturity that allows us to reflect the same maturity of the Father that sees the end from the beginning, that has a foundation in it that is stable through every storm in life. That foundation is found in the fear of God, in the awe of who God is. It is the secret of abiding in God, for the word of God says that the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and to them he will show his covenant. And it says he that abides in the secret place of the Most High shall dwell under the shadow of the Almighty. And it is in that place of secrecy with God that comes out of the fear of God that there is an intimacy and a knowing with God. Be still and know that I am God. As it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We are not here to be filled with our own presumption and self-initiations, but to come out of the fear of God into the knowing of the Father where we curb our self-initiations out of the awareness of whose awesome presence we are in as the Father. So that we come into the place of absolute awe. Did you know that they discovered psychologists or scientists that study the brain, that one half of the brain was, the whole one half of our brain, it was created to comprehend awe. Because in awe is worship. And in worship comes the knowing of God, and in the knowing of God comes the maturity to be entrusted as a father to father others into a mature oneness with God. Now, in this passage of Scripture, as we continue on, the next verse says this, I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. John the Apostle is affirming that the men that are young, he's writing onto them because he wants them to know victory in their lives. That they have already taken through their conversion that initial step that has the secret in it of overcoming the wicked one. Ye have overcome the wicked one. says, as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And it is in the way we, we first were converted and received Christ that we are to continue in him. And in that is the secret of victory. Now, young men are filled with strength and vigor and energy. And this, spiritually speaking, speaks of the dynamo's power and the youthful resurrection life power of the Spirit of God that can be in us that is overcoming. Paul the Apostle said, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. And we had that message not too long ago too. I think it goes two messages back. The secret to appropriating the exceeding greatness of God's power and authority in us comes out of knowing the source of our authority. And that is in the same way we received Christ Jesus the Lord. For it says plainly here, and I mentioned this in other messages, in 1 John chapter 1, I believe it is, it says, Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And it is the exercise of our faith in relationship to God, the Almighty's one, Elohim, 
that there is victory over the enemy. Christ said, I've given you power and authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. What causes people to lose out in such a relationship with God is when their faith has been dealt a blow in one way or another so that they are not exercising their faith and they're not walking in their faith. One could preach a long message and what's all involved in this. For time, I'll be brief on that. I was talking about how whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world and it shows very clearly that that is our faith. So what is our faith? It says in the word of God that faith works by love. Faith is the exercise of our human soul and spirit towards God the Father, towards God the Son, towards God the Holy Spirit, towards the Almighty's One. It is the exercise of our human spirit, represented in an open hand, as opposed to a clenched fist. It is the heart that opens up when it chooses to recognize God for who he truly is, first in his holiness, and secondly, that he can, out of that holiness, actually provide mercy and assurance of forgiveness. When you see the mercy of God, you then see the love of God to you personally. And when you see that, your soul, your heart opens up from being a clenched fist to an open hand in response to the love of God or the mercy of God, it reaches out. That is a state of selfless trust because you're not trusting in yourselves. Word of God says that we have no confidence in the flesh we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and in truth. And it's when we choose to fear God and recognize God in his mercy out of his holiness, not in a mere intellectual ascent, but in a deep turning of the heart through spending much time in prayer and waiting on God, learning to be still, also learning to move in an abiding relationship in his spirit and expressing praise and thankfulness. All of that is exercising our human spirit as an open hand into which the Spirit of God, the first time we're converted, comes to rest against that open hand with his Spirit representing our other open hand, forming the symbol of two hands of prayer that cannot close and become a fist and represent also a seed, which is the new divine nature. And so once this new divine nature of faith is in us, which involves God's Spirit dwelling with our soul and spirit, in a state of selfless trust, and as it is exercised through prayer and abiding, then there is the building up of our faith. It says that we are to pray in the Holy Ghost, build up ourselves in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. I don't want to go into much more, but Paul the Apostle said this. He said, we despaired even of life itself because we were going through so many trials. But he said, God allowed it so that we wouldn't trust in ourselves, but God that raises the dead. And God wants us to know the exceeding greatness of his power to us, word who believe, even that working that rose Christ from the dead. That we would know the dynamos power of God and his authority in our lives, so that we would know who we are in God. It doesn't come by allowing the enemy to lie to us and to buy into the doubt that Eve bought into. When the enemy puts us through trials, it brings the dross to the surface like gold that is being smelted. But then the enemy tries to accuse us and, saying, and say, see, that's who you are, so that we'll believe that's who we are and identify with the dross. God is calling us to not have believe the doubts of Satan like Eve did, but to have faith in his mercy 
that he can provide forgiveness. Have faith in his blood that cleanses from all unrighteousness. And the result is that we are purified and brought into a greater and a greater identity and authority in our relationship with God through the trials we go through as we exercise our faith faith through a life of prayer. Christ always prayed that he would be delivered from temptation and commanded us to pray that we would be delivered from temptation because it's temptation that robs our faith and can bring us to total ruin. It is through praying in the Holy Ghost that our faith is built up. And so this goes on in this passage of Scripture here. And it says here, again repeating to the fathers, I have written unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. So that's the second time it's emphasized that. Then it emphasizes to the young men again. It says, I've written unto you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. So he's basically saying, you've already been brought into this place. Now continue in it. Why and how? By allowing the word of God to abide in us. And the word of God is the expression of who God is that we receive through a life of prayer where we begin to experience through perseverance, breakthrough times here and there where God is revealed in a deep way to our heart. It also comes through reading the written Logos, the word of God. And in these ways, the word of God becomes strong in us so that we speak out of authority and have power over the enemy. I'm not going to go in to emphasizing that any further because this is already becoming a long message. Of course, after he describes these things, the young man, the fathers, the children, and again, I should emphasize about the children here, because the second time he talks about the children, he says, I write unto you little children because you have known the Father. The first time he says, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. When he's talking the second time to little children and saying you've known the Father, he's saying the same thing that he said to the fathers. He said, I write unto you fathers because you've known him that is from the beginning. It is in the knowing of God has our Father, that we can know a confidence that our sins are forgiven because we recognize who God is, that he is utterly holy and that there is severe judgment on sin, but that he also is filled with great incredible love and it's because his love is so pure that he's holy, but it's so pure that it's so great that he could love us so much that we know we can find the strength through him to not only be forgiven, but to overcome. And continuing in verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world or the present system of things, which system is based on a principle of corruption. Because it's not abiding in that ultimate perfect economy, which is only in God, which is this ultimate perfection of love as described in, as an ultimate negative and positive, so to speak, represented in the symbol of the cross as that positive symbol formed out of the negative and what springs out of the negative. It's not really a negative, but it's a crude way of illustrating it. The world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. I could speak a really long time and I will continue to speak until I sense the Lord's telling me not to. Trying to get through all of these verses seems like 
maybe something I shouldn't even be concerned about. It's he that does the will of God that abides forever. Because what, what is the secret to doing the will of God? The secret is what John is talking about in this whole passage. He's emphasizing, don't sin. He's emphasizing, don't be seduced. He's emphasizing in all of that that the real answer is abiding in him. And so he emphasizes Abide in him, abide in him. And what he's bringing out in this passage is the secret to abiding in God and over to overcome all things. It says in Revelations chapter 19, I believe. It says, he that overcometh will inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But that is said in the context of having a thirst for God. And I don't I see why I shouldn't go to it and just tell you about it. Instead, and just say it a little more accurately. And, um, boy, I think it might be chapter... Um, 21, that's my, I'm trying to remember these things. Sometimes it's, you know, a little different than you expect, even though I've memorized the book of Revelations. He says this here, starting in verse 6 of Revelations 21. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. The context of overcoming is thirst. It's those that are thirsty that have the secret to overcoming. So we'll go back to um, 1 John chapter 2. And in this passage of scripture here, we see that what quenches our thirst for God is love for the world in the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and the lust of the flesh, which is not of the Father, but is of this present world system, which is totally anti-God, because it is opposed to acknowledging the holiness of God and it is opposed to acknowledging out of rebellion against the holiness of God also the mercy of God that can assure forgiveness. I could go on and share but I won't get into that for time. The two aspects of rebellion are one, a religiosity that distorts God as a tyrant, as supposedly holy and demanding, but not assuring mercy and demanding mere ritualism. And the other deception is the denial of the integrity of God's love in the form of immorality that embraces all things that are contrary to God and to, and to loving God and to the commandments of God. And so you have universalism and the acceptance of all roads that lead to God, even though there's no understanding of the secret of ultimate economy, which is this ultimate perfection of love that will not tolerate sin or that which is contrary to the love of God. But ye have an unction from the Holy One. Now I could go on. This is a long passage of scripture here. I feel that maybe enough has been shared because now the message is becoming very long. 
I'll just finish with these last two verses. Little children, it is the last time, and as you have heard that Antichrist shall come even now, there are many Antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. I'm just going to emphasize, instead of going through all these verses, it says that we're, in verse 24, to let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. And then he emphasizes, but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, what? It teaches you to abide in him. And this is the secret to overcoming the world. And that secret involves cutting off busyness, cutting off motivations of busyness that are for our own self-seeking motives, whether it be the lust of the flesh or the pride of life. There are a lot of people who want to be in ministry just to have people look up to them or to feel like they're somehow in control over people, whatever. There are many people that have wrong motives. It caused them to be filled with a world of busyness. There are many churches that are filled with busyness, but they've lost out in relationship with God. So it's always important that we examine ourselves and see whether we are in the faith or not. There's too much here to share to continue without it being a three-hour message. And so I will leave off except to emphasize that it is very clear in this passage of Scripture that everything that is being discussed is for overcoming all things. And that secret is in abiding in Him. And that involves not allowing our thirst for God to be quenched by the things of this temporal realm that are motivated out of principles that are contrary to the being of God's love. In this ultimate integrity of love that can be transcendent out of that with the power to assure mercy and forgiveness. And that secret of abiding in God comes through growing in the fear of God, which is continually entering into a choice to rightly perceive God for who he is through a life of prayer, through a life of spending time in the word, and allowing the Spirit of God to lead us into all those things that glorify God in a life of good works. May God bless you all. Until the next message, I look forward to your prayers and your support, which are very much needed. Thank you so much.